everyone. Welcome back to the Criminology Academy, where we are criminally academic. My name is Jen Toslave. And my name is Jose Sanchez. And today we have Professor Martin Bouchard on the podcast to talk with us about the social networks of gangs and organized crime groups. Martin Bouchard is a professor of criminology at Simon Fraser University, where he leads the Crime and Illicit Networks Laboratory. His research focuses on the ways in which social networks relate to gangs, how networks help understand the dynamics of gang violence, who gets into gangs, but also how they may help with gang exit. Dr. Bouchard works with a variety of government agencies and stakeholders interested in using network methods to reduce gang violence. His mentorship has been recognized with the Simon Fraser University's Graduate Studies Award for Excellence in Graduate Supervision. He is also the 2018-2019 recipient of the Western Society of Criminology Fellows Award for individuals associated with the Western region who have made important contributions to the field of criminology. Thank you so much for joining us today, Martin. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. I'm a big fan of the podcast, so very, very excited. Maybe too excited, to be fair. Not a thing. (laughs) All right, so we're going to start off by talking about the social nature of gangs and then move into a brief overview of social network analysis, which will be useful moving forward in the podcast. Then we're going to bridge these two concepts and talk about the social networks of gangs. And lastly, we're going to close by talking about a paper authored by Martin on social network analysis and its relationship with collaboration and boundaries in organized crime. So, Jose, why don't you get us started? Okay, so our first question, so when we talk about being social, this word social often conjures up thoughts of, you know, pro-social activities like after-school sports, spending time with non-delinquent peer groups, so like after-school clubs, And I think it's safe to say that gangs and gang members aren't necessarily the first things that come to mind when someone says the word social, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're antisocial. So could you tell us a little bit more about what the social nature of gangs are? Yeah, you're, I think you're absolutely right. You know, that's not the first thing that comes to mind because we have this bias of pro, you know, thinking of social as pro-social in the sense of the owner of productive sort of legal activities and interactions. But yeah, no, I believe that gang members are super social, hyper social, even like a lot of of what may be more social than me. I mean, I've never been part of a gang or a large group myself, whether pro-social or not. I've been part of hockey teams, of sports teams a lot. But as far as hanging out with my friends, you know, on a Friday night, all of this, a lot of one-on-one, like I had, you know, best friends that I was seeing and getting that quality time, but the hanging out part, that very gregarious behavior that I consider gregarious behavior is, is you know, is something that, that I find gang members are especially inclined to do and, and pretty good at. So that's the first thing. The other thing is when you look at, at criminal behavior, criminal activity, especially when we think of gang members or criminal enterprises, anything that you need that collaboration from people, this is entirely based on that trust in the other like there's no recourse you know if if things go wrong this is entirely based on the trust that you have that you know that this other person your co-offender or your accomplice will do their part of the job and not maybe rat what happened to the police or, or become a confidential informant and there's a lot of trust going on and for me 
This is inherently social deep down. I was even working on drug trafficking, looking at a study and research findings, looking at modus operandi on how people, you know, which routes do people use for drug trafficking and what kind of lengths, you know, what kind of techniques do they use to traffic drugs and deal drugs. And a lot of it, you know, basically could come down to, well, I knew a guy. I knew a guy at this border. I knew a, a guy who was driving, you know, a truck, a van across the country, and I could, you know, potentially have a little space in that van. This is how my route started, because you knew someone specifically that, that could facilitate that, that, you know, scheme for you. So wherever I look, I see social behavior. When I see a conflict, when I see violence, I see a violent conflict that probably emerged from, you know, a social conflict, like someone that you know, someone that you, in your social environment, that, you know, you developed that conflict because you know that person. You care about that conflict because you know that person, whether it's an enemy of, you know, a fellow gang member, someone from your gang that is seen as a traitor or someone that you want to send a message to. It's an entirely social event. So I, I see it everywhere for my, for my part. All right. So you gave a TEDx talk. Was it last year? I think it was last year. It was, it was probably exactly a year ago. Yes. Okay. And it's really good. So anyone who's interested more in this topic, go check that out. But it's called The Unexpectedly Social World of Gangs. And during this talk, you, you know, really mention this violent behavior that gangs can be a part of. And I think a lot of people, typically, when they hear the word gang, that's kind of where their mind goes. And so rather than saying that this behavior was like a bad people problem, you said it was actually a social network problem. And so can you describe what you mean by this? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure I have the time. No, and to be fair, I may have borrowed this from someone, like someone like Andrew Papacristo, who's been sort of at the forefront of this type of research on social networks and gang violence. You know, I know it's something that you probably said one day, and it just, you know, that I needed to, to repeat in the TEDx talks to, <laughs> to mark the event or the moment. But yeah, no, it's, you know, because I feel that gang members or everything that they do is so centered on these social interactions and that trust that, you know, I feel that they're very social and I think we can exploit, you know, that sociability for good. I mean, for, for gang exit, for example, like if, if that connection to their fellow gang members is so important to them and as it is, can we develop other potential pro-social connections that are equally as important to them? in order to think about gang exit, because gang exit won't happen, you know, just like this in a vacuum because of a decision that was made, like their entire world is embedded in a social world that's important to them. There are traces of this from potentially their childhood. It's not that easy to get out of this, but network studies have shown that there are pro-social connections in about anyone's network. Their entire social life is not entirely based on what we would call negative, you know, social connections. There is hope. And, and for many of them, they, you know, if they want to come out, they just don't know how. And if you can imagine yourself wanting to get out of anything, you probably need support one way or another. You need social support is sort of the best word. Like any adverse events that happen to us when we're sick, when, when COVID starts, you know, the isolation that some people went through, it's very obvious that, you know, things are so much easier and so much better when we can have that social support. But that social support also happens within the gang. 
like gang members are going through stressful events themselves. They may have been close to a shooting. They may have, they may have a friend that has been shot at. There's a lot of trauma in that world, but they can rely on each other. They can rely on their brothers who've been through this themselves with them sometimes. So it creates this social bond that can be extremely powerful. So that's sort of my sort of premise to, to this question of bad people problem. And then I look into the research on this. We have Shannon Reed, who, who's been spending a little bit of time with gang members, incarcerated juvenile gang members, asking them about their friends. You know, are your friends supporting you? Are your friends there for you when you need them? You know, all kinds of questions around social support. And she compared gang members to non-gang members, and there was no difference whatsoever. So the number of friends that gang members had was the same. That's the other. And sometimes they have a little bit more, which also, you know, reminds us that they're very social creatures and they also have options around them if they make these, you know, if they want to make these connections for friendship purposes as well. But most importantly, they tended to respond to that question of social support in exactly the same ways as non-gang members. So in my mind, this question of, you know, bad people is that association that we have with the behavior the outcomes of gang violence. But the outcome and the violence itself is socially situated as well. You know, it comes from a conflict. The conflict does not necessarily belong to the individuals, but they're caught in it because of the sort of affiliation to a group that has been threatened by another group. You know, a lot of the times the conflicts in which they're involved does not even start from anything that, you know, remotely belongs to them personally. It could be a diss, it could be a lack of, you know, a, a sign of disrespect from that another fellow brother, fellow gang member experienced himself or, or herself. And then they go and, and, and try to help them out. That's also social support, but of a different kind. And we forget that it's still support. It's still a social act. So, you know, for my part, I, I completely detached the sort of bad people, the sort of personality. And I subscribe to at least the premise that it's a social event, it's a social act that can be perpetrated by people who are not bad themselves, but find themselves in these situations for other, you know, social reasons. A much more positive way to think about humans and human <laughs> nature, too. <laughs> Maybe too optimistic. I don't forget, I don't forget the violence at all. Yeah. I don't condone it in, in one way or another, but I, I just want to redirect maybe the attention mm -hmm on the socially situated part of that violence as well. Yeah. Also provides more room for like rehabilitation and prevention and all of that too. Exactly. Yes. As a Canadian, you know, yeah. I, I feel <laughs> a little bit in, in, in that part too. Okay. So we've been talking about talking quite a bit over the last few minutes. I mean, we have used keywords such as social network, social network analysis, and, you know, you mentioned Andy Papacristos, who has quite a bit of work with network analysis, but so have you. Can you briefly describe to us what exactly social network analysis is? And so what are the assumptions that are made using this method? Yeah, that's true. And sometimes we forget to define things and we just, you know, we jump straight to it. And I think jumping straight to it and still understanding what we're talking about also means like there's a commonsensical aspect to what social networks are. We're all, we all belong to social networks. We don't need to define it, especially nowadays and especially, you know, post social media and post COVID where social networks were so important to the way that COVID was, is transmitted. 
And, and everybody sort of understands like, oh my God, like my interactions, my bubble, like the people around me, this is so important. This is where I'll catch this thing. You know, it's going to be in the air. It's going to be somewhere that I, you know, my routine activities and my social activities are happening. And so we have that common sense of what social networks are. And so if you want to define it and get all academic or academically criminal, as you, you, yeah. you both are, <laughs> we can define a network as, you know, nodes and edges. So people and their relations. And when we say people, you know, the definition would say entity, because you can also put groups, you know, in interactions together. You can have a country also, you know, a network of countries, for example, if you're interested in drug trafficking and, and drug routes, you can put the countries together to the extent that people are using these countries in their drug route. So people and their social relations, their interactions. So the basis of the data itself is to have people and their relations and to put them together and force them together in a way that we usually don't. We usually try, like in, with survey data, we try to separate people. They're independent. We've been recruiting them. And, you know, we hope that there was no influence from anyone in the house. And we hope that they don't know anyone else from the neighborhood that could have tainted their answers because it should be all independent, like every good regression what? would be. And, of course, in network analysis, when we transfer that to analyze people and their relations, it's the other way around. We just flip everything on its head and say, you know what? People are connected, let's exploit that interdependence between people. And this is the very first assumption, Jose, for, for network analysis is that people are generally influenced by their connections around them, their perceptions, their beliefs, the way that they behave, the way that they think is influenced by what they've experienced in their social environment. And sometimes we think of this, you know, and, and I use this analogy when I teach about, you know, your family environment as the first social environment that you've experienced. And people think that, you know, because you've been exposed to something, you're, you know, you're going to generally do that same thing because you've been influenced by it. But this is not what it means. It means, you know, your behavior is influenced by exposure to what people think or do, but it doesn't mean that you'll follow that. It means that, you know, it influences your thinking, if you will. The analogy that I use all the time is, is my parents. My parents, you know, I hope they don't listen. They're both uh, French speaking. They may not, they may not get to that podcast, even if I send it to them. But my parents were both cigarette smokers. When I was young, it was just a nightmare to drive in the car and to have them smoke. And I think they stopped smoking 20 years ago, you know, to their credit. I just, I don't want to throw them under the bus there. But for a long time, for a long time, they were smoking. And that was my sort of social exposure to cigarette smoking. And I just vowed. When I was young, I said, there's no way I'm going to touch any of that, you know, in my life. And I haven't really. So I was influenced by, you know, my family connections and this exposure, but I was not necessarily following the same behavior. I made a decision for myself to not do this. It's the same for political views. It doesn't mean that your family, you know, has a certain conservative or liberal position that you'll necessarily, sometimes you'll, you know, it will confront, you know, your own values and your own independence as a person and say, you know what, this is not what I believe in, especially as you get older. But we're influenced by this. It forms, it helps form our views on things. And so that's the very first assumption of network analysis. And of course, we can think of exceptions. You know, we can think of behavior that doesn't seem to be influenced by any of this. When you talk about mental health and crime or, you know, some of these, these types of crimes that doesn't seem to have that social connection to them, there's plenty of examples, right? So we, we don't necessarily include 
everything. And another assumption is that there's something transmitted between people. So when we say they're connected, they're connected for what? How do we define this connection? And the definition of the connection defines the network. So if we have a friendship network, like a lot of ad health data is based on friendships in school. So this is a friendship network. This is not a criminal network. And then you have people committing crimes with some of the people in this network. And we could define this as a co-offending network if we limit to the people committing crimes together in the network. But the ad health question initially was a friendship question. So it becomes a friendship network. So the thing that is transmitted from one person to another is that friendship sort of tie, that emotional connection, that intimacy between someone. And of course, the differential association theorists out there will recognize some of the keywords. You know, Sutherland didn't mean to say that, you know, we know more people who commit crimes and then people who don't commit crimes and will choose most likely the criminal route. What he wrote was that the intensity, the frequency, the intimacy of these relationships matter. And sometimes you may know one person, one role model that is way more influential to you than the thousands of pro-social people in your life. And you decide to follow that person. So it just reminds us that there's something that's transmitted that is of value to these people. So we can build friendship networks, co-offending networks. We can also build drug trafficking networks. So there's drugs exchange from one hand to another, and we can build a network around that. It's a conduit. It's also dynamic. It can change, and it changes all the time. I can be friends with someone, and 95% of my interactions with that person are social. But sometimes we commit crimes together. We become a co-offender on Friday night, you know, when we make that deal. Other than that, we're in a social relationship. So with network data, you can classify all of those interactions as social. You can switch to a criminal interaction and go back to the social. You can be friends one day and in conflict the next day. And that's the dynamic part of the network. And perhaps the last assumption or the last thing about networks is that, you know, the sum of all of these interactions are greater than each of the parts individually. We learn something from looking at the forest, at the structure of it all. Like where are people located? What's around them? In a way that these people themselves may not even see. They just see the relationships around them. They see who they know, but they may not see the larger social structure in which they're embedded. And with network analysis, you know, we're also looking for these more meso and even macro social structure moments to analyze. So you gave us a few examples of how we can sort of use this approach to study crime. Can you tell us a little bit more about why this is so useful when we're studying crime? Yeah, I think, you know, deep down, I believe that crime is so social, right? And of course, it may be, you know, I may be influenced by the type of crimes that I study. You know, you study the phenomenon of gang membership, you're like, okay, I need, I need a good way to measure this, to track what's going on. So that's sort of what, what, you know, the first utility is like crime is so social. I would want to use potentially the best method to classify and order things. And of course, some people think social networks would be a quantitative approach, but it's neither quant nor qual. It's, it's hybrid. It's both. It's just different. And I think it was, I think Peter Carrington and from work by Harrison White, one of the fathers of, of network analysis 
that was saying that it's a hybrid. It's a hybrid method. It's not neither quant nor qual. But once you look at these type of phenomenon, I want to know, you know, who's really connected. I don't want to rely on too many assumptions, labels. I really want to see what's going on, you know, for real. And for me, what's going on for real is what kind of interactions are really happening. You can tell me that someone is a member of a gang, of a group, but I also potentially want to see it for myself, like for real. What is the evidence that you have that this person is a member? Does it look like that person is a member? And if it looks like that person is a member, then the network interactions will show it as well. Otherwise, you'll be just a member in name, and it won't mean much, you know, in terms of what's really happening. And you see that all the time with old organized criminals, old figures, you know, of the Italian mafia and all of that. They're, they're not involved in the day-to-day. If you look at their interactions, it's all legitimate. You know, they own this store here and a car dealership there. And, you know, it's all in the name. So, yes, maybe they were a member. Maybe they are a member of this criminal organization. But does it really matter in the day-to-day? And same thing. You know, the utility of network data, it's also to not associate someone who connects once or twice with someone belonging to a criminal group or a gang as belonging to the gang. Like, wait a minute, you know, this is a one-off thing. You know, it was a social connection. I just saw him at a restaurant. I gave him a hug because it was, you know, pre-COVID or I had a mask on. It's just a guy in my life or a person in my life. It's not someone that I, I'm not a gang member. I'm not part of this group here. So with network data, you can have, I guess, this quantitative criterion of you need a certain type of pattern of connection in order to look like a group. And then you may qualify, you know, quantitatively or with empirical data as belonging to that group. So it sort of moves away from these labels and try to look at what's really going on. I don't think it's better technically because, you know, I will also use that technique, look at the patterns of interactions and wrongly conclude that someone is a member of a group because they interact with them for so much. Right. I also want to know from the inside, what does that person think? Are they a member? What do the other members think about that person? And so I don't want to just rely on the data either. Right. I want I want the sort of melting pot of, of all the different methods and angles of attack. But this one, I think, one piece of it that we that was missing for a long time. So I see a utility just for understanding how these, you know, these gangs form and how how they morph, how they change and why. So, yeah. Yeah, it does sound really useful for understanding these more dynamic aspects of groups. And so I've taken a lot of quantitative classes. I definitely would have been one of those people who labeled network analysis as quantitative, but I've never taken a network analysis class. It it does look that part, to be fair, but I just want to remind people, and, and I have a lot of qualitative, you know, students who identify to a qualitative stream take my course and sort of realize like, how much, how commonsensical and more manageable it is than they thought, you know, almost from a social mechanism perspective that the qualitative approach is trying to capture sometimes the mechanisms behind. And I think that data allow us to see that backbone. And for me, it's a very qual sort of take on, on things sometimes, but yeah. Yeah. I'm just curious about your like personal thoughts as to why, network methodological approaches aren't more common in criminology, given how useful they kind of sound for these groups. Come on. I don't agree with that assessment. It's all over the place. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. (laughs) 
I just like I've never taken a class Jose. I don't think you have either, have you? No, I haven't. And I mean, I'm kidding. And then the people that I know that use it, like I know, like you know, we mentioned Andy Papa Christos, Martin uses it. That's who I know a couple other people have used it. I think Braga has used it a few times. Um, yeah, David Kennedy, you know, right, a, a lot of, of the behind the scene focus to Karen's work starts with a network analysis. And sometimes it's not even, it's not necessarily published, but, but you know, that's, yeah. that's starting. But no, you're right. You're right, Jennifer. <laughs> you're right. It's a small, small world, no pun intended, but we have a conference. We have a workshop every year, the Elicit Networks workshop. We have about 24 presenters per workshop. We're trying to, you know, create recruits and, the, you know, to create like a cult that people would want to follow and, and I guess the more we create this cult the more we paint ourselves in a corner and we don't we don't expand no I think I think one sign that network analysis expanded is its presence in mainstream print journals so you may not have a faculty member teaching it at your school but if you look at a few issues of criminology journal of quantitative criminology journal research in crime and delinquency, you'll see a few pieces. Like, you know, if you follow the trends, you'll see more and more, you know, as time passes. And so that's a sign of, you know, the epidemics, you know, that is about to happen, maybe. No, no. But yeah, no, it's, it is limited. We have like this little group with David Bright in Australia, Ailey Malm, Gisela Bickler, California State, San Bernardino, Francesco Calderoni in Milan, also like a bunch of people that are part of that conference, including, you know, Andrew, and this was funded by Carlo Morselli and, you know, back in the day as well, who was a big, big, of course, you know, prominent figure in that world that we're all trying to sort of make proud somehow. (laughs) But I think part of the difficulty with networks is the data themselves, like how how to collect. And, you know, when it's a cult, you know, there's very little exposure for people to integrate these methods, you know, in their own work. And so people tend to do and reproduce what they learn, and there's nothing wrong with that. But then it, it's a slow, slow process to integrate network methods. But you have Ad Health, for example, integrating in a network questionnaire, standard network questionnaire, network questions. We've done it with Eileen Malm and the other people from the World Wide Weed Project, where we added a questionnaire online where people were asked, you know, hey, who are your partners? We don't want any names. You know, the names are for yourself, but we just want to make sure, you know, that, you know, you use a nickname or, or somehow like a way to represent that person for you. And do these people that you collaborate with, do they know each other? Does person A know person B? And trying to get a sense of the embeddedness of that individual in that environment and then extracting individual level measures like criminal embeddedness, like something that David Pyrus used a lot in his work. You know, how embedded is this person in in this sort of social structure of gangs or a certain type of crime? So it's starting to be integrated like this. We have people working in what we identify like a spatial analysis, like George Tita, you know, Jason Gravel, who studied under under him as well and under me before, also at Nava Temple, like using these methods as well, looking at the gang conflicts in California, looking you know, at the mix of spatial and social, you know, convergence of people in times and places. John Hip, you know, with ego hoods concepts. Look, a lot of these people are are integrating and we don't realize sometimes that the kind of work that they're doing is is informed by network analysis. So so I think there's a difficulty in collecting the data and the sort of ethics of it all too. 
you know, when you ask people about themselves, it's one thing, you know, in terms of consent. But when you ask people to talk about other people, it requires a different type of, of you know, ethical review. And it needs to be justified and it needs to be focused on the perceptions of these people. To the extent that it's a perception of my social environment, you know, the survey is still about me, you know, somehow. But there's all of these hurdles that you need to cross from even a research perspective, a research ethics perspective. And in order to be to have valid and, you know, ethically responsible, I guess, collected data sets, it's not easy. Yeah, that was something that David Pyrus and I, we were along with some other people putting a survey together for an, like a project in the Oregon prison system. And we really wanted to get at like networks, but we were thinking if we're talking to gang members and asking them who their best friends are in here, like they're not going to give us the names probably, let alone the ethical considerations too. Yeah. So you, yeah. you mentioned that you ask for like nicknames instead of yes. real names. How do you link people together then? Yeah. So the nicknames, you know, type of design would lead to what we call an egocentric analysis. So it's an analysis of that person's network only. Okay. You never sort of put it together in the end. You never connect it to other people. And that's a very low hanging fruit for people to integrate to a questionnaire. So we won't necessarily, you know, put people together and try to match nicknames mm-hmm. with other nicknames used elsewhere, but we'll at least situate a person within their own social environment. You can be a gang member who works only with fellow gang members. So when you ask that person about their collaborators, they're telling you 10 other members of the same gang and no one else. And all of a sudden you ask a member of the same gang or another gang, and maybe that person's a leader. And you ask that person, and when you ask about the close, the last 10 transactions they've done, maybe there's two or three within their own gang, but they also connected to people outside independent traffickers or other gang members because, you know, transactions happen with other gangs as well. Like you cannot stay within your own gang and get both the source of the drugs, the customers and everything that needs to happen. So, you know, you have to go and connect outside too. So you you get a sense of how much a person gets out of their own network, how much a person is embedded within their own network. They don't know. They're not exposed to anything else. So then we talked, you know, about constraints. You know, my, my network, you know, is sending me a certain picture of, of life, a certain type of criminal opportunities, and I'm not exposed to anything else. That's all I know. This gang violence, this group, this neighborhood, other people way more cosmopolitan in their approach and their network, and they're exposed to all kinds of things and opportunities. And then the important part of this is that it becomes a strong predictor of the length of a criminal career. If you're exposed to all kinds of criminal opportunities and you're making money, you know, one of my favorite podcasts of yours is, is with Holly Nguyen talking about, you know, earnings, you know, if generating money is about the network itself, you know, mm-hmm. who, what are you exposed to? How can you generate opportunities over and over? And if you're exposed to the same people all the time, you know, you know what they know. And if an opportunity or a drug route dries, dries up, then you're stuck. Mm-hmm. Like you have to create something, but if you know someone, if you have a varied network, so then, then you have access to perhaps more opportunities. So the egocentric focused on the person is much, much easier to do. And of course, with Derek Kreger and colleagues, we've done the pins project. So we looked into prisons. We had what is called a roster method to build a network. So 200 people in this unit, 
here are the 200 names and we meet with as many of the people who are incarcerated in that unit as possible and ask them, who has your back in this unit? Mm -hmm. If you need something, not necessarily anything criminal or illegal, we don't want you to snitch or rat anybody, but just talking like, who do you hang out with? You know, who has your back here? And that's, you know, the version of friendship that we have in prison sometimes. So the roster and the type of question that we had, but we asked, there was nothing about illegal behavior, but it was about being in prison and having to form your own social grouping allowed us to ask about everybody in the unit and then connecting everybody together. And the fascinating thing is that some of these relationships are reciprocated. Like when, you know, person A says that, you know, person B has my back and we ask person B never mentions person A. That, oh, go, okay. You know, so yeah. maybe it goes one way. It doesn't go the other way. And then you, you start to get a sense of the forces, you know, in this sort of informal hierarchy in prison. Like what's going on here? Who's, who tends to be in power? Who has influence here? Who is the person named by the most people? Like some people says like 70 times the same person is in power in this unit. Like, okay. You know, so that starts to be, it starts to become the sort of social structure that we can make sense of. So that's one context in which we can have all of the names and try to match the same way that Ad Health had the rosters of the school in order to match names to people. That's cool. And this is, so we're talking everything at the individual level. What are some of the challenges that you might see, like saying using groups instead of individuals? Yeah, that's a great question. Like one of the, I guess, pioneering study of studying groups, because you can study connections between from group to group. And Andrew Papacristo has a great paper from 2009 in, in HAS connecting a gang to the extent that this gang had a shooting. One of the members of this gang was involved in a shooting, you know, with another gang. So the shootings may involve individuals, but you can always aggregate it to the group level to the extent that the conflict can be represented as, you know, belonging to the group. Like I acted in the name of my, of my gang. This was a beef that was going on between our two gangs. It doesn't really matter who pulled the trigger, so, you know, in, in some way. So that's one way we can do network analysis. And in, in that Papacristo analysis, it was very neat to see, say, the networks of 1994 in one year, looking four years later. And that was one of the points of the paper that these shootings, this violence is socially embedded and culturally embedded. These conflicts do not change, you know, fast and easily. It's not random, as Andrew would say, you know, it's pattern. It's socially patterned. It is, you know, there's that cultural imprint that when a conflict between these two gangs tend to have occurred over the course of many years, it will continue over the course of many years because when you join that gang, you learn to dislike the members of this other gang. And so this conflict is sort of taught into you as you integrate the gang itself. So you can do these group-to-group analyses as well. You can aggregate individual behavior to the extent that there's a collective component to it and then form networks in a different way. Yeah, I think one of the coolest things that I've seen, I don't know if you've heard of Jeffrey Brantingham at UCLA. So I at the pleasure of working with Jeff a little bit, he was brought on to the Gang Reduction Youth Development Program in Los Angeles and as part of their, their research team. 
And one of the things that Jeff sort of brought to the table, because you know he's kind of a genius when it comes to quantitative methods, it's actually kind of surprising how much he blew everybody's mind when he introduced this idea of using network analysis or some of the stuff that we wanted to see in the city. Because so one of the questions that somebody had, one of the administrators of the program, was should we be devoting equal effort across everybody, right? So basically, we're treating all gangs as equal. But then using the data that we had and LAPD data, what Jeff ended up finding was that they're not, that some gangs are a lot smaller than others, of course, but some gangs get victimized more than others. Sometimes like the size of the gang didn't really matter as to how much that gang got victimized. And so we started seeing sort of this variation in how the gangs interact with each other throughout the city of Los Angeles. And okay, maybe we should spend a little bit more resources trying to address these hyper aggressive gangs because they're the ones that are seemingly really driving the violence at this point in time. So yeah, I think there's looking at groups can also be pretty helpful. I think so too. And it's a good example. And with network analysis, what we would try to do, you know, in theory is to merge this violent behavior and with the network positioning that these gangs have. So to the extent that you're isolated, not connected to anyone, but you're violent as a group, maybe you're less of a worry than if you're, you know, central to the network and you're right at the middle of everything so that say an intervention that would touch your gang, the message, you know, if you're interested in the deterrence message would diffuse to more people and perhaps have more impact on the violence in the community. I think that's a good example. Yeah. And while we're sort of on this topic and you sort of touched on this a little bit on your TED talk too, we're just going to keep plugging that TED talk. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's my tour. It's my tour a year later. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> How can we use so what we know about this social nature of gangs to address the gang problem? Well, that's a great question. I think I think once we understand the patterns and once we define it as a network, like you know, as Andy Papacristo would say or, or do, like if you follow the shootings from one year to the next in any city, and we've replicated this work in, in British Columbia where I live. And it's the same thing, even on the small scale, the smaller scale of conflicts that we have. We have a few shootings a year. We don't have like maybe the one year that we use was 23 shootings, gang shootings. So we don't have hundreds like Chicago or, you know, the Boston area that Andy analyzed. But once you start to follow these shootings, you realize that there's a pattern and there's a predictive element that, you know, that comes into play. It's like if there's a pattern and if a conflict follows from one victim to the next, if there's a retaliation pattern, and that the victims are selected almost, you know, if you look at the network, you can almost predict like who are the likely victims on the other side of that conflict that are likely to be targeted given, you know, the prior connections that these people have. So you start to see patterns. So you can start to think in terms of prevention. And the way that we've defined the prevention part using networks in here in British Columbia is in a duty to warn type of program. So duty to warn say, well, based on our data, Some of these people are the most central in a gang victim network. So you can build a network around victims of gang violence, all of their interactions. And all of a sudden you have a social structure of victims and their interactions. 
and you have people that are more central in this network. So what does it mean to be central in a gang victim network? It means that you're connected to more people who have been shot than others. You know, maybe you're connected to one or two gang victims, or maybe you're connected to 10. Maybe you don't even realize that because it's an indirect connection. So the centrality, the network positioning of people in a gang victim network can help us make predictions. And I, I use that very loosely. Like, I don't want to make predictions in the hard sort of science way of making predictions, but just getting an idea of who's at risk and have a better idea of who's at risk of getting shot. And so applying these methods in this context can be really beneficial. So duty to warn is, well, we get people that are extremely central in a gang violence network, in a gang victim network. At least we can knock on their door and let them know. You know, based on our information, and, and police officers do this all the time. Gang squads do this all the time. But the thing with network analysis is you can help support that work. That often comes from criminal intelligence. We also have a little bit of data that tell us, you know, that you may be at risk. You seem to be right in the middle, right in the line of fire, if you will. And so that's one way in which this work can be used for gang violence specifically and try to prevent the violence from happening if we understand the pattern of violence going from one person in the network to potentially a bunch of others that seem to be the most likely future victims. All right. So shall we move into the paper then? I think that kind of gives us a good foundation to work off of. So the paper we're talking about is authored by our guest, Martin. It's called Collaboration in Boundaries and Organized Crime, a Network Perspective. It was published in Crime and Justice in 2020. And this paper really provides kind of a fantastic overview regarding social network analysis and its relationship with organized crime. In the heart of this essay, Martin discusses four areas of inquiry that he believes could leverage social network analysis to shed light on organized crime. So first, he discusses the difficulties with determining membership in criminal organizations. Second, the boundaries of group membership, including who is a member and who is not, is discussed. Third, Martin discusses the issue of using ethnic homogeneity as a descriptor for crime organizations. And finally, recruitment into organized crime is discussed, focusing on the boundaries of current members and potential members. Is that a decent enough kind of summary? Oh, wow. Of- <laughs> Much better than what I would have done. So, yes. Yeah, <laughs> I great doubt summary. That. Yeah, Good. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So kind of our first question, one, if you've listened to our episode, you've heard this question multiple times when we ask everyone, what was the goal in writing this paper or the motivation behind the paper? Well, it was a trip to Bologna, Italy, offered by the crime and justice <laughs> editor. It was a dream of mine ever since I was doing my PhD to publish in this journal. I didn't know how, like, can we submit? Are we invited? And So, yeah, I received an invitation to write an essay on on networks and organized crime. And I was so surprised to see that the invitation included a workshop around the people in the issue to meet in Bologna, Italy, pre-COVID, to discuss the essays and try to get better. So the peer review process is not just the two or three reviewers when you actually write the paper, but also the 12 to 20 people in the room that read the essay and and asked you questions and tried to to refine your, your thinking so that was amazing. Cool. And just saying it, like I'm just filled with nostalgia of travel <laughs> and everything that we haven't done in, in the past two years. Like, oh, my God, it seemed to be so much easier 
to do these sorts of things. But in any case, the motivation behind the paper was to, I guess, debunk a lot of myths around organized crime. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to just use the network methods and the literature on network methods to try to debunk these, you know, these ideas that we have about organized crime that may not be accurate and show how network data can potentially help us move away from these misconceptions. But I was also cautious of not using too much speculation because crime and justice essays are meant to be sort of a, you know, state of the art review of the things that we know about a field. So when choosing these four sort of boundaries, I also wanted to make sure that there was enough material behind a lot of them in order for me to summarize that literature and be confident, you know, about the assertions, I guess, the statements uh, on the literature that I would make. So that was one of my uh, sort of aims and objective was to properly represent where we're at. But I also wanted to have a cool sort of angle of attack. So I used the, the boundary issue. Because I find that the network data is, it's really, that's where, that's where it's a little bit different. That sort of is competitive edge over others is that we're not limited to a little box that is fixed in time, a box of membership, a box of, well, this is a criminal interaction when 95% of the interactions between these two people are social in nature. It's not because we're friends with someone that we're never in conflict with them. And so that fluidity of network data helps answer and, and just provide this complementary view on what I find are the fixed boundaries of a lot of that research. So that was my goal. That was the aim. Try to, to have these misconceptions and try to see and show how network data can can help us sort of overcome and understand better. So like you know it's in the title org- organized crime. Can you tell us what exactly you mean by organized crime and <laughs> How how does a gang fit under this term? I, I can't, Jose. I can't. Come on. You know this is so. This is a term with such history, right? With it, you know, you can. It's, it's easy to go wrong if you go too, even too rigid in, in what for organized crime represent. You know, for you, and if you go too broad, then everything can be organized crime. Like as 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 soon as you organize yourself somehow it becomes organized crime. So I don't want to get into any of that. I, I don't think I wanted in the paper to get into any of that either, but I do want to answer your question. And one of the terms that I prefer myself, that I think is a, it's very related, but it's a bit more precise for me, and it's criminal enterprise. Mm-hmm. And for me, the criminal enterprise definition puts the, the emphasis on an ongoing activity you know, that you make for profit. And these ongoing activities, as opposed to spontaneous or, or impulsive criminality, have a little bit of organization because you need a source, you know, of supply. You need co-offenders, people to sell to. There's a little bit of a, that, that. So for me, that ongoing component is really important, regardless of what you call organized crime or gangs. And the other thing that I like is that continuity over time. And I'm always reminded, and I don't know, like one of my mentors was Peter Reuter, Still, still Peter Reuter, still a mentor. I did a postdoc at the University of Maryland with him. And I don't know if he, if he even uses that definition, but in 1984, he published a definition of organized crime that was focused on the capacity of a group, and that applies to gangs too, the capacity of a group to survive the loss of its first leader. Right? So if you are, you know, 
enough of a group, of an entity that can be recognized as a group, the initial sort of charismatic leader won't matter if you lose that person to incarceration, you know, or, or death. It won't matter. You'll still exist as an entity. But if you, if you fold as soon as you're challenged, you know, at the top, then you may not qualify under the phenomenon of organized crime. So it gives us a sense of what, what do we mean by continuity? Well, maybe it's not a quantitative criterion of one year, six months, like it's ongoing. So we're trying to build something for the longer haul, not spontaneous. But what if we, if we lost that initial person that, you know, brought, brought us all together, maybe that wouldn't be a big deal. And for me, that's a sign of, you know, you've crossed, you know, a certain threshold. But I like criminal enterprise a little bit more because it's specific to the business and organized crime has yeah. this, this political, almost also media, movie, cultural, you know, elements that people will identify to. And I don't think it's necessarily wrong. Right. You know, and in many ways, you know, organized crime is what you think is organized crime. But from an academic perspective, if we want to be a little bit more precise, we can focus on, on one or two of these criteria, like ongoing activity for money generating purposes, you know, with more than one person or two. Right. So so there's this element of a group that seems to be important. So it's fairly broad. But at the same time, it allows us to think and talk about a lot of these phenomena related to both gangs and organized crime without being sort of stomped every step of the way. Like, are we are we talking about the same thing or not? And then I think I subscribe to the David Pyrus and Scott Becker continuum of gangs to organized crime like that as belonging to the same sort of family of ongoing sort of grouping activity around a purpose that involves illegality, among other things. I think they would all sort of fit under that phenomenon. And in that essay, I tried to go away from gangs, street gangs, mm-hmm. in order to go into of the more adult or, you know, older school, what some people would call traditional organized crime examples, with keeping in mind gangs as sort of part of that continuum, nonetheless, you know, as far as they're ongoing and for money generating purposes. And also trying to, you know, see how network data does not necessarily force us into the criminal aspect of gangs, but we're also going to consider the social interactions that are, you know, sometimes are the most, the majority of interactions within even the Italian mafia. Some people would say this, like, this is family. This is my family. Come on. Is it a mafia? Is it a criminal organization? Like, come on, those are my brothers and sisters and cousins. And there's always that element and that mix of social family and criminal and and I think with network data, we can sort of make sense of the criminal element code for the rest, but can remove it from the data at will in order to speak of the criminal organization aspect of a network. So long winded answer, but <laughs> I think the question requires, you know, the long winded answer. All right. So I'm going to keep going on with the definition questions, Martin. So I hope you have a dictionary handy, but so you you build this essay around this core issue of boundary specification. What exactly does this mean? Like, what is boundary specification? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, a boundary will give us where a phenomenon start and end, you know, where a country, where a neighborhood start and end. So the, the boundary when it comes to organized crime is we're trying to figure out who's a member of this organization. And it seems to be a useful sort of label for law enforcement agencies and even to describe a phenomenon to be able to tell 
what are we talking about? Are we talking about 100 people, 200? Who's a member? What do they do? Are we looking at the right people? And so that's the sort of first boundary is who's a member, who's not. And, and the other boundary that I see is with the social and the criminal. Like, where does the criminal start and where does the socialization end? And is it one and the same or should we try to separate the two? And what I try to argue in the essay is that at least potentially, to the extent that you have good data, you can. You can separate the social from the criminal. A lot of the people around gangs and gang members will have only social ties to the gang. And we need to be able to tell them apart. And that's the goal with network data, at least potentially. That ties in with like one of the first areas for this core part of the essay. And so we're going to go through the four things separately. The first area involves exactly what you were just talking about, the difficulty of determining membership in criminal organizations. In this essay, you talk about like the blurred social and criminal boundaries in organized crime. So can you just talked about this, but can you talk about it just a little bit more and provide an example and then describe how a network approach can add clarity to this problem, which you kind of already did, but... Yeah, yeah. And, and you're right. You know, I think we've touched on this because that's one of the main sort of the utility of, of these data. But, you know, I think a lot of the Italian mafia scholars, you know, over the 30 years, 40 years, I've always argued that it's so hard to separate the family, the politics of Italian mafia families with the crime. Like it's all intertwined. Like it's not clear, you know, what's going on here. And a lot of people have trouble understanding this, you know, and that, you know, because you are a convicted criminal, because you commit illegal activities, doesn't mean that all of your interactions will be criminal or that all the people around you should be associated with your organization if you have one. So that the simple argument that I'm trying to make is just, let's try to differentiate this by focusing on a different unit of analysis and not giving a label to someone, but giving a label to an interaction from that person to someone else. Because that's what we're doing when we qualify an interaction as criminal, social, conflictual business. We're giving it a label, but we're more likely to be accurate, you know, based on that one moment in time, this is what these guys were doing together. And I always remind my students and everyone, like even with family members, the interaction context that you're coding is not for a family interaction, unless it's a funeral maybe, but it's a social event between two brothers, two cousins. They're socializing. Okay, you can be a bro- you know you can socialize with your brother. You can also co-offend with your brother. But we can make the distinction clear with network data. And when it comes to time to determine who's part of this criminal organization, potentially, let's remove all of the social interactions, including the social interactions within you know the gang itself, if we want, yeah. and focus on the criminal. And then we'll discover a lot of one-off relationships, a lot of customers, a lot of people who do not qualify as member of the organizations, even if they co-offend or they have one transaction, one deal with them. Because to qualify as a member of a group, you need to have that frequency, that consistency of interaction. So then we can apply a quantitative criterion if we want. Like this, in order for this to look like a group, the cohesion, the density of the group needs to be at a certain level. And the people who do not fit within this set of people at a certain density can be excluded. They're not part of this organization from a network 
data perspective, which is not the only perspective, again, but it's complementary to the intelligence, the information that we have, and even the self-identification of gangs as gang members. That's important, too. Like, ideally, we want it all, you know? And, Triangulation. And yes, yes, exactly. Okay, so the second area that you talk about in this essay is this question of membership. Who is a member? Who is an outsider? How can we tell the difference? And you talk about how we typically rely on official data to sort of make these Mm -hmm. assertions, but that there might be, there's issues with using official data. And this is something that we've talked about before on the podcast, specifically with gang members. But can you elaborate on why official data may be misleading for determining a group member is? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think, you know, to be fair, official data sometimes, that's the only access that we have to any sort of idea of whether that person is remotely connected to the gang phenomenon or to a group. I think a lot of police officers in the field have very good knowledge of what's going on. So personally, I don't start from the premise that this is useless. It's quite the opposite. But I do want to caution everyone using them, and even myself, when I come across these data, that of one of the issues of official gang labels is the sort of permanence in time of it all. Where does it come from based on what information? And is it still the case one year, two years, three years later? Is this person still a member of this gang? Like, where did that start? So, I think it's useful maybe for, for law enforcement pers- you know, purposes, it, maybe it's useful and maybe it comes from good information at the time of original coding. But from a research perspective, when it comes, when it comes to time to use it, it's that indefinite aspect of the label that can be problematic. So that's one thing. So with network data, potentially you could have a set of interactions over the course of many years involving a set of people. And to the extent that they tend to interact always together with the same people and that they fit a criterion, a threshold of cohesion that, you know, look like a group. If you're going to be a group, you need to interact at least consistently and closely with a certain set of people. And then we can apply these criteria and we can play with, I guess, our labels with a little bit more of a dynamic aspect like it can change like this person was labeled as a member of this gang but in 2021 that person is nowhere to be found around this gang or group so is it still fair to maintain that label for that person so a network approach would say well in 2021 i don't see that person as having network behavior that is conducive or amenable to this label you know and so i think that's a you know a complementary piece of information it's not a silver bullet i think you need it all but at least it gives us another criterion upon which to evaluate whether our labeling seems to be matching a reality in the field. And that would help determine when someone left the gang too, which is important for attitudes, behaviors, everything else too. Exactly, exactly. All right, so it's pretty common to hear the terms like Mexican mafia or Italian mafia. Like we've actually had Cecilia Meneghini on the podcast talking about the Italian mafia before. And Mm. these classifications, they're used in public discourse as well as criminal intelligence databases. And this is really the topic of this third part you talk about in the essay. 
yeah. which is ethnic boundaries and whether they exist in organized crime. Can you talk a little bit about this? And you do mention that they're useful for like a local context, but not necessarily outside of that. Yeah, no, it's a great, it's a great question. You know, I struggled with writing that part because I wanted to make clear, first and foremost, that I don't think there's anything wrong with referring to a phenomenon as the Italian mafia. I think it exists on a cultural level. And it probably is distinctive, you know, in many ways, like it works differently as a phenomenon, trying to sort of describe it. It's like, well, this is not the same as the kind of criminal groups that we have in British Columbia, you know, outside of that sort of Italian context. Of course. So that's very useful. I also think that there's a tendency for gang members and people in general to associate with people who are like them. You know, we call this homophily, you know, all the time. And so we tend to connect and to be attracted to to people that almost, you know, look like us. And so that's not meant my argument to sort of discredit this idea that's deeply rooted. If you look at people from a certain ethnicity and who they work with, you know, and you, you look at the ethnicity of their co-offenders, you probably will find a majority that belongs to the same thing. So, yes. So that as well is not something, you know, that I contest. But I think once you're past the sort of Italian mafia or the very culturally specific phenomena here, like you're, you can be limited by calling your type of organized crime based on an ethnic sort of grouping. Very, very quickly, once you follow the data and the network data, you'll find that the Italian mafia collaborate with a bunch of groups from other ethnicities because they have to do business internationally to import and export that cocaine to other countries. They tend to work with all kinds of people that may not be Italian. And all of a sudden you find yourself trying to describe this phenomenon. Like, well, is it, is it still the Italian mafia if they're working with, with people from, from elsewhere? It's like, no, it's a network, it's business. So as soon as you focus on the transactions and the business, you, what you see is more diversity than you expected if you had followed the labels of a sort of unique ethnicity. Like for something to be called, you know, Mexican, Russian-based, East European-based mafia, it needs to be so distinctive that it's an actual helpful way to classify the phenomenon. And we can actually complete the classification using purely ethnicity. So what happens, you know, and it doesn't work. You know, you just reach that dead end very quickly. So I think it works, you know, for Italian mafia or something very culturally distinct that also influences the way that they do illegal business. So then you're into a type, maybe, you know, that sort of intertwined family roots, you know, recruitment, it needs to be important. If you're not part of the family, maybe you marry, you know, within the family, and then you become part of our family as well. Or like, you know, the Sicilian Casa Nostra would be a little bit more stringent on these criteria than, than others. But so I don't, I recognize that that exists, but I find that once I'm past the two or three, I cannot classify everything else as also ethnic based. I feel there's a dead end. And I feel that if we're a little bit more open on the way that they do business in general, well, maybe we can call it like a family base. We can call it something about, you know, the way that they tend to operate beyond the ethnicity so that we can recognize that most of these deals are happening across ethnicities in the first place. And just previewing your next question, maybe on, you know, the network data that, that allows to do that, it's like, let's follow the transaction. Let's just follow who they do business with. And very soon, you find yourself going across the ethnic boundary. 
And so is it that useful to classify it like that? Because we can forget and not even see that this is happening because we're so focused on getting the Italians or the Mexicans. And so what about, you know, what about the Caucasians here in BC that are doing business with them? Like, where are they in your investigation? I think it's a dangerous way to start, you know, analyzing a phenomenon. Then it's, it's easy to be wrong and to be blind to a lot of the details that happen. And I think that a lot of the details on the transactions and interactions, that's what network data allow us to do and, and to see. And some of the studies that have been done looking at, at transactions across ethnicities here in BC with Eileen Mom, for example, Gisela Bickler, were absolutely fascinating sort of diversity of ethnicity involved in the same transactions. Like even the biker gangs who are not supposed to cross ethnic boundaries here are doing business, you know, all across the ethnic, you know, ethnicity range of people that are available for business. And so it's just a caution of the potential dead end once we're past the very sort of examples that we know. So nothing against that, because that's probably the prototype code example, the Mm -hmm. Italian mafia, maybe. Yeah. Okay, so the final area that you talk about is recruitment into organized crime. And you describe this as thinking about how and when outsiders cross over this boundary into the world of organized crime. Because, you know, you don't start in organized crime, right? Like at some point you have to get brought in. You're not born into it instantly (laughs) and become a mess. (laughs) Well, even when you're born into the family, you still need to prove yourself like a potentially good co-offender, I guess, or, or man. Yeah, I was going to say, maybe I should, because I don't know much about <laughs> about my organized crime, but can you talk to us a little bit more? Can you describe what recruitment might look like into one of these groups? Yeah, I mean, in this section of the paper, I wanted to highlight the fact that recruitment is also a process. And sometimes, you know, we sample based on the moment that a person, you know, becomes a member, like officially. And we tend to not see everything that happened behind the scenes. Like if you see this as the iceberg, the iceberg is, hey, I'm a member, I'm a prospect, I'm a new recruit. But the iceberg is, how did that person get to that place of being recruited? That person was observed, you know, sometimes for years when we talk about the Italian mafia or some of these organizations in order for that person to be deemed reliable and trustworthy. You know, that person is a contact of someone in the organization that is vouching for them. You know, so so that contact, you know, does not happen overnight. You know, this is something that could happen over the course of years and years of assessing reliability and sometimes doing it proactively, sometimes passively. Sometimes, you know, it happens, this recruitment, very organically. You know, we converge in the same places and same areas. We do a deal together. We sort of like each other when we do the deal. The deal went well. We all made money. It's like, hey, you know, are you looking to become part of this organization that, you know, I think you could be a good guy? I don't know. And then they see each other at the bar again. And, you know, it's organic. And it's not a moment, a spontaneous moment in time. That iceberg is where I see the benefits of social network analysis is that if we follow the interactions of Joe, member of this organization, made member, veteran, and we look at it, you know, the interactions of Joe over the course of many years, and we look at the recruits that are brought in that Joe vouched for, you know, we can sort of find the sort of roots and pathways into this phenomenon that's really hard to get into. It's not available to everyone. So you need to be part of that social world. 
And what I call for in, in this section is just to map the social world. This recruit was one of many contacts of Joe. You know, and there's a reason why that person potentially was recruited over another. And I think the network of Joe and, and everybody else, you know, can give us some answers that we don't have right now because we can only sample once we see that person as a member. But that person comes from somewhere in the social world of Joe. And so, so this is one of the things that I wanted to highlight with that section is that it's a process and it's a social process. Like Edward Clemens and Van de Bont, 1999 called this like a snowball, social snowball effect. Like these things happen organically. David Pyrus talked a lot about late onset gang membership. How to come to adults, you know, that you know seem to emerge out of nowhere, you know, join a gang or, or become part of this phenomenon. Well, you know, maybe it, it happened organically in their social lives. You know, they happen to be in touch or exposed to people who were part of this gang and they happen to have some skill set you know, some expertise. One thing that the gang or group was potentially looking for, but initially, you know, it's a social tie that started this, the trustworthiness of that person. You know, you don't bring just about anyone. You need to be vouched for, you need to be trustworthy. And this process of assessing trust is a social network process. And, and that's what I wanted to, to highlight there. Yeah, that's cool. And it takes time, too. I'm sure it would be interesting to trace it back all the way to see all of the different interactions. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Do you have any other comments that you'd like to leave us with that maybe we didn't ask? (laughs) (laughs) No, well, I'm going to be disappointed when this episode, you know, air because I won't, you know, get to learn something new from from another of your guests. I really enjoy the podcast myself and and it's always appearing on my phone as soon as you have a new episode. So I I just want to commend you for the work that you do and you're doing a service to the field. And I think it's recognized. I I think people people get it and people appreciate it. But I I just want to thank you for inviting me and thinking of me for today. Yeah, well, thank you from us to you for being on the podcast and being a guest and sharing what you know with us and everyone who will listen. Um, Is there anything that you'd like to plug, anything related to this that might be coming out? or? (laughs) But no, I think you've plugged the TEDx talk. The TEDx talk. (laughs) I appreciate you reading even the paper so closely as well. It's a pleasure. No, I just want to give a shout out to my students at the Kane Lab at SFU and, you know, none of that work and none of that knowledge would, would you know, amount to anything or, or if, if they were not there to inspire me and motivate me. So that's it. I just want to say hi, hi to them if they listen. Yeah. Cool. And then our last question is where can people find you, whether that's Twitter, email, Woo. whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm on Twitter. I don't necessarily participate or I'm very active, but I am on there. I like to follow the field and what's going on. I think it's a great way. It's a great complimentary way to learn about the field and what's going on. So so that's definitely one way to contact me and, and see what's going on. Yes. Well, I think you're more active than I am. So, you know, oh, there you are. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again. It's been a pleasure having you on. Yeah, yeah thanks thank for you. having me. Appreciate it. Bye, guys. I'd like to your little guy, Jose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was a great report. Yeah. Bye. Bye. The Criminology Academy is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at The Crim Academy. 
If you're on Apple Podcasts, please rate, review, and subscribe. Alternatively, let us know what you think of the episode by leaving us a comment on our website, thecriminologyacademy.com. And lastly, share the Crim Academy episodes with your friends and family. can't hear you yeah okay i lost you jose for 10 seconds um yeah i think <laughs> are we back jose say something i don't think he hears us no i don't either it's a blooper moment <laughs> i'm so Gone. glad we have one <laughs> yes yeah <laughs> Oh, you're back, Jose. Oh, cool. Back. Okay, perfect. Hmm. We got our blooper moment. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So.